21 this morning. Real quick, I had a uh, thank you given to us here um, just a little bit ago. It says Harvest Fellowship VBS. The Napoleon CPC thanks you and your giving of used and new clothing and bedding. May God bless you all in helping us help others. You are a blessing. Thank you, Napoleon CPC. And the Napoleon CPC is a ministry that we support out here. It's a great pro-life ministry, and uh, we have an opportunity to bless them. And one of the items that the kids brought in during uh, VBS this year were items that could be donated to that. And so, just a neat blessing to be able to bless them. So we'll put that up on the bulletin board so you guys can see. All right, we'll be in Luke 21 this morning. Luke 21. And let's do the smart thing and pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. Thankful for the time. As always, you teach. We listen. Let your spirit guide and direct. And pray that we would have hearts to hear and ears to hear what you're speaking this morning. In your name, amen. Luke 21. Now, last week we kind of did parts of Luke 21. We did verses 5 through 19, skipped verses 20 through 28, and came back and did verses 29 through 36. So now we're going to come back and do verses 20 through 28, and do verses 37 through 38. Now, there was a method to our madness on why we did it this way, because the way the topics came together, we wanted to be able to cover them entirely, and it was important for us to do that. A little bit of background, and I don't want to repeat everything we went through last week, but you have to understand to set the scene. It goes back to verses 5 and 6. Jesus makes a a comment about the temple, and he says in verse 6 that one of these days the temple is going to be destroyed. Well, that leads the disciples to ask this question in verse 7. When will these things be, and what sign will be there when these things are about to take place? So now it leads to this great end times teaching. And so in verses 8 through 19, we got into end times. What's it going to be like at the end? And we went to Revelation 6, and we talked about how the seal judgments kind of look like some of the pre-signs that we're talking about here. 2 Timothy 3 and 1 Timothy 4, and we went to Matthew 24, and we talked about the end times. But the application part of it, Jumped ahead to verse 34. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and the day come on you unexpectedly. Jump ahead to verse 36. Watch therefore and pray. That's what we talked about. We talked about how it's easy to know the world is falling apart, and then to do absolutely nothing about it. Why? Because we're too busy, focused on, verse 34, the cares of this life. I need to focus on Christ returning, but right now the yard needs to be mowed. i got a really busy week at work this week, so I can't really focus on the Lord at this moment. We let the cares of life. See, we don't let the carousing and the drunkenness pull us down. It's just life. We let life get the best of us. We get so busy living that we forget the reason we're here is to serve the Lord. And so that's what we talked about last week. So we have to finish up verses 20 through 28. Now, what you have in 20 through 28 is another answer to the question. They asked back in verse 7, when will these things be? One of the questions is, when will this happen? When will this temple be destroyed? And that's what we see here in verses 20 through 24, which also then is a stepping stone to other end times events. So, verse 20 says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
What Jesus is talking about here is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Because just about 40 short years later, the temple was completely destroyed. See, what happened is this. And right around 66 A.D., Israel decided they didn't like Rome being the oppressor. So they kind of started to rebel and revolt. Well, Rome didn't handle that real well. So what they did is they came to Israel, encircled in Israel, and basically besieged Jerusalem. Now, the governor, excuse me, the general at that time, his name was Titus. And he had this plan. What he did was this. See, the Israelites have these holy days where they need to come back to Jerusalem to go to the temple. So what he would do is he would open the siege, nice guy, and allow all the Jews to come back into Jerusalem for the holy days. And then he would close the siege back up. So Israel ran out of food and water very quickly. So all of a sudden, now there's all these Jews in here, and they besieged it. And it got awful. According to history, it was completely awful. Estimates over a million people were killed, and roughly about 100,000 were taken as slaves. True fulfillment of verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. It's the time of the Gentiles. See, Israelites are Jews. The Gentiles were now ruling and running Jerusalem. When did the time of the Gentiles start? That's up to debate. It really doesn't matter. Some people believe in 586 B.C. when Babylon first defeated Israel, that from then on Israel really never was a power. Some people think it started in 70 A.D. It really doesn't matter when But right now, we're in something the Bible calls the time of the Gentiles. Now, some of you quick on history may say, no, that's just not true. Jerusalem is Israel's today. 1967, Israel got Jerusalem back. Did they really get Jerusalem back? As far as I know, there's something called the Dome of the Rock sitting over there in Israel. That's really not Israel having Jerusalem back. There's still Gentiles there. There's still that Gentile presence. And in fact, in Revelation 11, it continues, Jerusalem will truly not be God's until Jesus Christ returns. And that's what he's kind of talking about here. So it's important for us to realize this and to know this and to understand this. So that is a fulfillment of what he talked about earlier back in verse 7. But Matthew 24 does this. Matthew 24 uses this as a stepping stone to further end time events. Because this is what happens. There's going to be the Antichrist that comes here. And the Antichrist will come on the scene. And the Antichrist will set up an idol in the rebuilt temple. And this is all going to happen in the future. And then Israel is going to be judged again by that Antichrist there. And he will attack. And Israel will be tormented and attacked. And it's going to be a horrible then. See, Matthew 24 uses the same example as something the Bible calls dual prophecy, dual fulfillment. Meaning, it means two different things at the same time. Yes, it happened in 70 AD, verses 20 through 24, but it's also going to happen again. And what happened in 70 AD is just a small taste of what it's going to be like in the future. So what's the future going to be like? Let's check it out. Verse 25, And there will be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress on nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's heart failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. God says there's going to be these signs and distress of nations, perplexities, etc. Guys, that's what's happening right now. Look at what's going on. We have things going on over in the Middle East right now with Syria. We're trying to figure out what to do. There's things going on all the time. This is why every service we stop and try to pray for our nation, because our nation needs godly wisdom and direction on what to do. And I'm not going to try to get on my soapbox here, but this is important to note. If you truly want to focus on what to do, we have to focus on Israel. That's the focus. 
Because really what it comes down to is, if you want to know what's happening, keep your eye on Israel. That's what you got to do. Genesis makes it clear. The nations that bless Israel will be blessed. The nations that curse Israel will be cursed. We want to be the nation that blesses Israel. Now what has happened as time has gone on, our support of Israel has started to wane. we got to be careful about that. Because when it comes to the end times, and don't take this the wrong way, I am never excited about the death of children or adults and, and the atrocities that's happening over in Syria. But at one time when I see all these events happening, now you start hearing Iran say, well, if somebody does something, if Israel does something to Syria, Iran's going to do something to Israel. And what happens is we hear all this stuff. Now you have two responses when you hear these things. I should say three. First response is you just don't pay attention. Sadly, that's what too many people do. Second response is fear. Because look at verses 25 and 26. Distress of the nations, perplexity, men's heart failing from fear and the expectation on those things. I think it's interesting to look at what these different translations say. And I just brought up a couple of different Bibles here just to kind of share. You know, if you have the NIV out there, it says right here, Nations will be in anguish and perplexity. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. And one more here. This is out of the New Living Translation, which I think does a good job too. It says the New Living Translation, Nations on earth will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring sea and strange tides. People will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth. Now, that's the second response, is to be terrified. But what happens if Syria does this, and Iran does this, and Israel does this? What's the Christian response? Verse 28, Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. See, as a believer... I don't have all the answers, and I don't ever claim to have all the answers. But I know the timeline and how it works. And I know when I see the world falling apart, my salvation draws near. That is an encouragement to me. That gives me peace in the middle of the storm. Every now and then when these world events happen, I get phone calls from a lot of people. And if I get phone calls from believers, excuse me, from non-believers, and they're kind of worked up, they're kind of wondering what's going on with this, what's going on with that. I'm always careful to not say one phrase. I don't say, don't be afraid. I think non-believers should be completely scared out of their mind. Because if they're not saved, there's a horrible future happening. And I don't say that to be funny, and I don't say that to be mean. But I'm not going to tell a non-believer, oh, don't be worried about what you see going on in the world. No, 25 and 26, you should be in distress, you should be perplexed, and your heart should be failing. Because the reason these things are happening is God is giving you a sign to say... The end is coming. Now, here's the problem with saying the end is coming. I've been saved for 20 years, and I've been told the end is coming every year that I've been saved. I've been teaching out here for 16 years, and every year I tell you the end is coming. It hasn't happened yet, has it? I got something in the mail the other day, and I was going to bring it in, and I forgot. It was bright orange at the bottom of it. It said, mailogram, mailogram, just kept repeating that. Big, bold letters, urgent, open immediately, Everything. Opened it up and it was for a magazine subscription. Point is this. We get desensitized by things. You remember when you were younger and you got to go get the mail? My boys get to go with the mail and they get junk mail. And they're like, Dad, open it. No, there's no reason to open it. Dad, you need to open it. It's like, boys, I don't have a subscription to Glamour magazine. I don't need to open it, you know? As an adult, we toss it. Boys, it's exciting. As life goes on, you get desensitized by junk mail. I think the same thing happens spiritually. Guess what? Jesus is returning. Yeah, I heard that a couple decades ago. i got to go mow the yard now. 
the cares of life distract us. Now, as believers, if we truly believe that the end is coming, if we truly believe that the signs are coming and the world is coming to this part, this should spur us on more than ever to get out there and be a light and a witness. We have the knowledge of what will happen. We have the understanding of what would happen. This should spur us on to be different in how we live and how we act and how we witness. Here's the problem. The world and Christianity, you almost can't tell the difference anymore. Christians act like the world, talk like the world, dress like the world. We're different. We're called out. Now, with that being said, are we taking this wisdom we have and saying, okay, I want to use this to spur people on to have a true knowledge of what's going to happen. Because Christ is going to return. And when he does return, he's coming in judgment. Now, it's important to talk about the two different returns of Christ. And we're covering a lot of area today, but there's two different returns. The first return of Christ is called the rapture. The word rapture literally means called out, caught up. This is where it happens before the tribulation starts. The tribulation is a seven-year period where the Antichrist rules and reigns and God judges the earth. Tribulation is basically the book of Revelation. Before that happens, there's something called the rapture where believers, anybody born again, is taken out. The Bible says that Christ meets us in the clouds. Christ does not step foot on the earth. We get to go home. We're done. We're free. The second coming happens at the end of the seven years where Christ literally steps foot on the earth. And he steps foot on the earth to judge. That's Revelation 19. When Christ comes, the second coming, it's judgment. It's scary. It is just like we said in verses 25 and 26. Perplexing, distressing, anguish, hearts failing. It's a very scary thing. As believers, we have this wisdom, we have this knowledge. What do we do with it? Are we going to walk in fear? See, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear but of strength, power, and a sound mind. So, when I see the world falling apart on the news, it doesn't lead me to fear. It leads me to, verse 28, an expectation of my redemption draws near. What do we do with this information? Sadly, what do some Christians do with this information? They run to the hills. Christ is going to return, so let's run to the hills and just wait. I don't see that. How are we supposed to be a light and a witness when we're running and hiding? Other Christians build a fort around themselves and their families. The world is getting awful, so we're just going to fort ourselves up spiritually, and we're not going to be touched by anything, nor we're going to touch anybody with the gospel. We're just going to wait. That's not what God says either. God says we're supposed to work, occupy till he comes. Just a few weeks ago, we talked about Elisha. Went out and touched the dead body and brought the dead body back to life. And we said how spiritually we're called to go touch the spiritual dead. They need the gospel. We have the gospel. Let's go tell them the gospel. But the world is scary. I just want to take my family and hide. No. I want to take my family and proclaim the gospel. Because verse 28, my redemption draws near. I know this. I get this. I understand this. So one segment wants to go hide. What's the other segment want to do? One segment wants to get angry. They want to get angry. And i got to be honest, I fall into that segment sometimes. I see the world falling apart around me, and instead of my heart breaking for the lost, I get excited about judgment. Wow. I get excited when I think of, you know what? When Jesus returns, you're going to see how wrong you were. Hope you like those little demon scorpions in Revelation 13 when they come poke you. I hope you like that. And that is that heart of anger. And what I see as Christians, instead of our heart breaking for the world falling apart, well, that's what they just deserve. 
That's also what I deserve. Don't get me wrong. I'm not defending the world. I am appalled at the world and what the world says is okay. I'm also appalled at myself sometimes when I look at myself in the mirror. We as Christians need to make sure we're not hiding. We need to miss Christians to make sure we're not angry. What are we supposed to do? Let's just keep it simple. Let's do what Jesus did. Verses 37 and 38. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Jesus did two things. He taught, verse 37, verse 38, he ministered. Let's do that. Let's not hide. Let's not get angry. Let's teach the gospel and then let's minister to the lost. How simple is that? The other day we were doing devotions with the boys and we talked about the concept of fruit. I was trying to teach them as Christians you're supposed to produce fruit from the Lord. So I'm trying to teach this to an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 3-year-old. 3-year-old had no concept in any way whatsoever. The 5-year-old thought he literally was a fruit tree. and I couldn't get through to him. The six-year-old Judah, our comedian, would go up to everybody all day and pretend to pick peaches off of them. You know, we're supposed to produce fruit. What does that mean? Well, it says in John 15 that God is glorified when we produce fruit. What does he want us to do? He He wants us to spread the gospel. So often I run into Christians that are perplexed and confused on what is God calling me to do. He's calling you to present the gospel. That's what he's calling you to do. Now, the how, the where, that's a unique calling. But ultimately, you're called to glorify the Lord in presenting the gospel. And so my role, as the world is falling apart, as I see Iran and Syria and Israel falling apart, what's my job? Verse 37, my job is to do what I'm doing right now, teach. This is what God's word says. This is the truth. In a world that's perplexed, distressed, anguished, and scared, I can give you peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do I do next? Verse 38, I minister to those people that are hurting and struggling. You do the same thing, be at work, at home, at school. You preach the gospel, and when somebody's hurting, you minister to them. Keep it simple. That is what we're called to do. Don't run to the hills. Don't fort your family in. Don't walk in anger. Don't walk in fear. Walk in, verse 28, an earnest expectation that my salvation draws near. And that I want to take as many people as I can with me. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, why don't we do that? Well, it goes back to last week, verse 34. Do not let your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of life. As we talked about last week, carousing and drunkenness, yes, there's sin in our lives, and we want to make sure the sin's not there. That's why we're going to finish up with communion. But it's also what we spoke about last week, that phrase, cares of the life, that we've already mentioned today. Why don't I get so worked up that the end is coming and I have the answer? Because I'm just really busy right now. School started. Sports are going on. I mean, NFL starts Thursday. There's a lot going on. The cares of the life. Why am I not concerned that there's friends, family, and neighbors that are dying and going to hell? Why else do we not get worked up? Why else do we not take this message forward? Go with me to Matthew 24, please. Matthew 24. I highly encourage you, if you don't have a a devotional that you're doing right now, Matthew 24 and 25 fit in wonderfully with these last couple of teachings here that we've gone through in Luke. Matthew 24. Why else do we not see the importance of this? 
It's Matthew 24, verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made rule over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom the master, when he comes, will find so doing. Very simply put, the master is God. He is returning. I am the servant, so I'm supposed to be doing the things that my master wants me to do. What am I supposed to be doing? Verse 45, handing out food. What's food? Jesus is the bread of life. Okay, that's simple. What's the problem? Verse 47, Assuredly I say to you that he will make him rule over all of his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming. Wow, we fall into that trap. Yep, Jesus is returning, but I'm kind of busy. My master is delaying his coming. We lose focus on that. I'm not making any claims. I'm not saying today, tomorrow, this year, next year, a decade, a hundred years. I'm not saying, because I don't know. What I'm saying is this, it could be today or tomorrow or next year or a decade or a hundred years. Let's not get that mindset of my master is delaying his coming because what happens next, verse 49, and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. See, what happens is when we lose focus on the return of Christ, we do these things. We begin to beat the fellow servants. Some of your translations say smite. Now, I hope we're not literally beating our fellow servants. But what do we do sometimes as Christians? We sure beat people with words. We sure attack. My goodness, as Christians, when we see non-believers, we attack them. We attack their lifestyle. We attack what they do. We attack what they say. We attack everything about them. Is what they're doing wrong? Of course it's wrong. They need the gospel. I'm not saying once again that we downplay what we're doing or agree with what they're doing. No, it's sin. But why are we attacking somebody that's already lost? We need to present the gospel of truth to them. It goes back to that anger thing. When I see somebody who's lost, when I see somebody who wants to take my community, my family, the nation, whatever, down, why is it an a, I attack? Why am I not praying? Why am I attacking? Why am I not fasting for them? Next one, we eat and drink with the drunkards. We basically morally lose our standard because, listen, I know the whole thing about God returning. I don't know when He's coming back, so I'm just going to have a good time until He does our moral standards as Christians start to then go down. As we said before, Christians dress like the world, talk like the world, we act like the world. We're different. The Bible says that judgment begins at the house of God. We should morally stop and say, I have a different standard and calling that I'm called to. When I look at non-believers acting like non-believers, they're acting according to the moral standard that they believe in. That should not shock me. But when I see Christians acting that way, They're not living up to the moral standard that God set. Too often as Christians, we're so quick to beat with our words rather than present the gospel of Christ. If we really want to see difference made, it comes through people being saved in Jesus. It comes back to what Christ did. I'm going to teach and I'm going to minister. How simple is that? I'm going to teach the truth and I'm going to minister to the lost. That's the example that Christ set. He didn't rant and scream and rave and attack. He taught and he ministered to non-believers and he pointed them towards the cross. We as Christians need to make sure that we're doing that same thing. Listen, we have a very unique position. We understand the timeline, how the world ends. We have information along that type of line. We have knowledge. With that knowledge, that should spur us on to live a life for Christ in all we do and say, but then also spur us on to be a light and a witness in all that we do and say. It's easy to get caught up in the cares of this life and to be brought down. 
But we have a different standard that we're called to, and we're called to do just like Christ in verses 37 and 38, teach and minister. That is how we can make a difference for eternity with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, with that being said, that's why we wanted to go into communion. Because it's really easy at this time to want to do these things and not follow through. It's really easy to get distracted at this time and not follow through. Communion is a wonderful time to stop and say, Lord, I want my focus to truly be on you and all that I do and all that I say. Now, a couple quick points here on communion as we get ready to partake of it. And I know some of you have heard this before, but it's important to mention this in case we have some people new here. First off, we, we bring the older kids in and we encourage the older kids to sit with their parents. And parents, we leave it up to you. If you feel your child is old enough to understand and grasp what communion is, we want them to partake of it with you. Next thing here at Harvest, we have something called an open communion policy, meaning we don't have church membership. Communion is open to anybody here this morning who has accepted Christ as their Savior. Now, with that being said, we think it's important to do two things at this time. The first one is to present, to make sure it's presented clearly what the gospel message is. And the second idea, then, is to present to believers a time of confession to go to the Lord. So the first thing is very important. As we get ready to partake of this, that cup represents the blood of Christ, and the bread represents the body of Christ. That blood is the blood that was the sacrifice that was given. In the Old Testament, animal sacrifices covered your sin. Well, here in the New Testament, Christ's blood does not cover my sin. It completely wipes away my sin. He pays the debt of sin. I owe God a debt. I have sinned. I cannot have entrance into heaven without the blood of Christ. The bread represents the body, the body that took the punishment for my sin. I deserve punishment for the things I've thought, done, said, etc. Christ took that punishment for me. So as we partake of the bread and partake of the cup, what we're really doing is saying, Jesus, I accept your sacrifice for me. It's important to see that. It's important to understand what these elements represent as we partake of this. It's a great picture of salvation. And we want to make sure that's presented clearly there because that's what we need. To stop and say, I'm not going to accept the sacrifice of Christ is really saying, I think I have enough good, I have enough merits on my own to enter into heaven. That's not possible. We're sinners, all of us. God's standard is perfection, and we've not met that standard. Communion reminds us of what Christ did. Now, as a believer, walking with the Lord, it's also important to partake of it, because it says this in Corinthians, it says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now is the time to examine yourself spiritually, to give those areas over to the Lord that you're failing in, to give those problems, those sins that keep creeping up, Maybe problems in your family, in your marriage, at work, at home, I don't know. But you can present those to the Lord and say, Lord, I need a healing in this area. And allow the Lord to move and to work, be it spiritual, be it physical, to give that over to the Lord. So what we're going to do is this, as Bob's going to go back and uh, grab the kids. We're going to take a time here and just have a quiet moment of prayer and give these things over to the Lord. Lord, as we come to you now, we just think of this message once again. We know what this means and what this represents. Lord, help us to take that knowledge, not to sit on it, but to truly go out and be a light and a witness in all that we say and do. And we all have unsaved friends and loved ones. I pray you'd speak salvation to their hearts and help us be lights and witnesses for you. Lord, I also want to pray for us. If there's someone here that does not know you, I pray you're making it clear and evident in them what you have done for them. Your salvation that you have given, your blood that takes away sin, your body that took the punishment. 
Lord, speak salvation to their hearts. And Lord, for those that know you, are walking with you, but are struggling, we take time right now to examine ourselves and to give, us, give you those areas of weakness that we have, those areas of sin and struggle. I think of what you said in the book of Psalms, Lord, to search us and try us and know our heart, see if there's any iniquity in us and lead us in the way of everlasting. Lord, help us to walk in you. Let's quietly go to the Lord now in prayer. Lord, it's so easy at this time to feel completely overwhelmed by all the failings we have. Thank you for being a God of grace and mercy and love. That, Lord, you pick us up, you clean us up, and you love us. Thank you for that. Lord, we give you ourselves, this church, the nation, the world. We pray that we may serve you in all ways. We lift this up in your name. Amen.